The Producer Podcast is back in development as I'm sitting down with producers Andrew Travaskis and Adam Gregory from Noble Story Co. to talk about their film journey, Noble Story Co., and developing film projects. So without further ado, let's get started. So thank you both uh, very much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Micah. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So I thought I'd maybe let you two rock, paper, scissors over this, but maybe take a few minutes just to kind of introduce yourselves and uh, how you got started uh, as working on like producing film projects and that. Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. Um, it started when Andrew bought me a hamburger from Disney World. Like one of those like, $20 hamburgers. Okay. He went straight for the straight for the heart of the issue. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since then, we have bonded over food and film. <laughs> yeah. Half, half of the food Andrew cooked. Andrew's a really good cook. Mm-hmm. And half of the food he makes or talks about him making, I'm like, what is that? I'm like the Midwest boy that grew up on the farm, like potatoes, steak and potatoes. That's all I know. And Andrew's opening my world, both yeah. in the film sense and the food sense. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's this incredible meat called fish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do live in Michigan and, and I am surrounded by the Great Lakes, the largest freshwater system on the planet, but I didn't grow <laughs> up eating fish. So um not a lot of fish. I grew up fishing. Uh, my dad ate fish, but and I guess how, how Andrew and I met, we met at a conference oh seven, eight years ago. And um yeah, just kind of hit it off, you know. Just kind of spent a couple years, you know, hanging, talking on the phone. I live in Michigan. Andrew lives out in California. And so we just kind of struck up the the long distance relationship there, I guess. And then got into making some short films together and then partnered up and and did a limited series and then launched Noble Story Co. March of 2020 to much fanfare <laughs> as the world <laughs> shut down. Um, but yeah, Andrew, I'll let you kind of take it from here. Yeah. So, um, I mean, how far back do you, do you want to go back farther than that? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) When I was 10, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, I mean, actually that is kind of pertinent because the reason, a lot of the reason why that I'm in film is because when I was 10 or 11, um, somewhere, somewhere in that age, my mom went on a women's retreat or something like that. And my dad said, all right, I got a movie for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think my mom knew about this. Uh, and he showed, a he showed me, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It gave me, you know, it terrified me, you know, the whole exploding head scene and melting faces and, um, um, all of that. I had nightmares, um, But I think what captivated me about that movie is, you know, weeks after seeing that movie, I could still visually replay the entire film 
in my head. And that was the first time I had experienced that, seeing a movie that was so well-crafted that I could remember it visually so strongly. And that really intrigued me. And I didn't know what a director did. I didn't know what any of, you know, I didn't know what any of the filmmakers did or who was responsible for creating that vision in my mind's eye. But um, I started, you know, trying to trying to recreate the feelings that I had while watching Raiders. So, you know, like most kids who've seen Indiana Jones, we made all the Indiana Jones spoofs in my backyard and, you know, um, all of that sort of thing was obsessed with Indiana Jones. And to this day, it still is one of my favorite movies. But I think a lot of the reason why I pursued filmmaking was because of that um, encounter with this very well-told story. So uh, fast forward, yeah, met Adam at a conference, went to Disneyland, bought him, bought him a burger and haven't been able to get rid of him since. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> loyal, loyal to the end. <laughs> I think like the, the backstory to that story is, you know, Adam and I did what probably a lot of, uh, you know, independent film producers, up and coming film producers do, you start working where the money is, which is for, in most cases, the commercial and industrial industries. Mm -hmm. So producing films for companies, for, you know, product demonstrations, doing commercials, doing online videos, all of this stuff. Um, we joke that we'd probably still get paid a lot better if we were still doing that. But... Yeah, probably. <laughs> if I put you know, the same hey. amount of effort into corporate work as I have in, yeah. the, in the film. But around the time that Adam and I met, we had both kind of reached the glass ceiling of each of our respective industries. Um, I shot a, you know, like I got to the point where the movie, I was shooting a promo on film like actual film so i'm like you know what i don't think we could go much higher than this um and adam you know was doing stuff with all these huge companies you know in grand rapids that's the home base for amway and the devos family and we were both doing things at the top level kind of looking around saying all right well that's that now what um and we both were struck by this need to do something that was additive to the world. Cause I think both Adam and I felt that we were, the world is full of noise and we were fearful that we were just adding more noise um, mm -hmm. to the world by producing more content that people aren't going to watch. Or, um, you know, it's all the stuff that you skip on YouTube to get to the video that you actually want to see. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, we wanted to do something that was additive and, <laughs> like many other film producers all right let's get into narrative movie making cool <laughs> we go to this conference easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's you know both adam and i separately we didn't know each other when we showed up we started pounding business cards um hey give me my big break i've done all this stuff for all these companies you've never heard of or maybe you have you know like, um somebody we're like handing out yeah we're <laughs> <laughs> We're handing out business cards like Monopoly money, yeah. and um, and nobody nobody paid nobody... any attention to us. Um, but we met each other as like you know the business card competitors, and um, 
And I think <laughs> like all these years later, even though we didn't get our big break out of that con that conference, what we really needed to do was to meet each other and to say, okay, nobody's going to give us the opportunity to get our big break. You kind of have to make your opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that Adam and I realized is in all of these conferences, you have to do it yourself. If you want to be in film, you kind of just have to get off, you know, get out from behind your desk and like actually make a movie or start a business or you have to work towards your dream. It's not just going to fall into your lap. And so the ensuing time since Adam and I met has been just that us working to build that dream in one way or another, whether it's producing projects together, um, starting businesses together, doing investor pitches together. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. We learned a heck of a lot more about pitching to investors than I ever wanted to learn. Yeah. I think that what Andrew just said is honestly, if people only take that away from this podcast, it's very important. You really have to, um, it's it's who you know and all that, but you you really have to to make your own way if you want to to be in it. You really have to go for it. Yeah, you know. Um. So Adam and I are Christians, and one of the things I'm just going to clear this up a little bit. Noble, we're very intentional in not branding Noble as a Christian film production company. Um, we want to have a lot broader reach than just the Christian film audience. But Adam and I are strong believers, and that drives many of the de- the decisions that we make as a company. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to say is, you know, during this process and keeping with the whole, you kind of have to make your opportunity. The way that Adam and I have seen God open doors for our company has always been when we're moving and knocking on doors. And it's not there have been so many things that have happened that could not have been created by us. Like there's so many opportunities that have arisen that are not our doing. Um, There's no way that we could have orchestrated that. Um, For instance, a story that I like to tell one of our largest investors in our company um, invested in us because he happened to visit a friend of his who was investing in us. Yeah, Willie was like signing the document. Yeah, he was like signing a document and the conversation was, oh, what are you signing? Oh, well, you know, a couple buddies of mine are starting a company together. And I thought I'd, um, I I thought I'd invest a little bit of money. And he, he invested some money, but it wasn't a lot. And this other guy comes in and says, okay, well, that's great. I'll, I think I'll invest in them. We never met him. Um, and it was <laughs> yeah. one of those things like, I can't do that yeah. again if you asked me to. That was God providing for our company. But in order for that to have happened, we would we had to get off the couch and go talk to the other guy first and tell him about our company and do all of the business work to make sure that we can take investments and that we have a business plan that's worth investing in. Like we still had to move and then God provides. Mm-hmm. And so as, you know, in keeping with, don't wait for your dream to fall in your lap. Go and do it. Don't wait for God's perfect will and everything to fall in your lap. Uh, focus on 
you know, pursuing a relationship with God and get off the couch and go do something and then watch and see where God is moving and then go where God is moving. And that's where you're going to find success. So anyways, that's all right. I don't think we, we, we got off topic a little bit, but no, that that's really good. I don't know what to say. That was epic. That was awesome. Yeah, I guess maybe let's jump in uh, to looking at kind of development and maybe starting with like, how do you even figure out like, is this story worth developing? Because I know I've had plenty of people reach out to me like, I have this script idea or I have this story from my own real life that I think would be perfect for a movie. And I'm, I hear it and I'm like, I don't really want to give up five years of my life to bring that to the silver screen. So how do you, how do you make that decision? What are you guys looking at with your company to figure that out? Well, that's a great question, Micah. And I think that's a question that not a lot of people really understand or think through um, all of the different components of that, because in many ways, what you're asking is what story deserves to be a movie, right? Mm -hmm. And like you hinted at, there's a lot of people we've had, you know, as you can imagine, we've had countless people come and say, oh, my story needs to be a movie or my friend's story needs to be a movie. And on a gut level, you hear the story, you're like, yeah, that's not a movie. That's a great story, like not taking away from your story, but that's not a movie. Yeah. And um, kind of what you're asking is what's the difference between, okay, that's a great story and all right, yeah, that's a great movie. Because movies are a very specific format and it's a very specific type of storytelling and not every story is a perfect fit to the format of a film. So um, how we consider a story for adding to our slate, there's a few things that we do. Number one, like right off the bat, we have some very general content mandates in things that we're interested in considering. Um, and that just kind of helps weed out some of the noise because, um, like I said, there, we get people from all over the place who are telling us, you know, about their stories and sending us scripts and all that sort of thing. And you have to have a system to kind of weed out, you know, the 99 bad ideas from the one good idea. Or my, more like the 999, 000, or 999 bad ideas from the one good idea. Um, that's more the ratio that we found. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have three main content mandates. The first one, in keeping with our name, Noble Story Co., we're looking for stories which reflect truth, depict what is right, do not defile, and pursue excellence. Um, and... That's kind of a paraphrase of Philippians 4.8, which is one of the guiding principles of our company and one of the sources of our name, Noble Story Co. So um, another way that we like to phrase it is stories which honor that which is good, true, and beautiful. You know, it's kind of a old dating back to some say back to Socrates and the, you know, the three transcendentals of goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, that's kind of like the the main threshold that we look at and that leads out a lot of the noise you know right away um if you're looking at a drama which is very dark there's no redeeming 
qualities to it. Um, yeah, it just doesn't fit in our brand, doesn't fit in our content mandate. So it's easy to just say, no, this doesn't match with what we're doing. I don't even need to consider if the story is strong or not. It just doesn't match from a branding level. Um, yeah. Another one of our content mandates is we choose stories that are based on underlying IP, such as books, life stories, real events, or pre-existing creative materials. You know, it doesn't have to be a true story. It can be a webcomic, for instance, something that already has a pre-existing IP underneath it. Um, and there's some business reasons, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, and number three, this is a new content mandate for us, but we're very interested in looking for franchisable stories. Um, we don't we don't have any on our slate at the moment. Um, this is for new acquisitions that we're looking for. So I just think from a strategic perspective, um, making a movie is so hard to do. And mm -hmm. if you can find a movie idea that um, you can get off the ground and it demonstrates success, like business and financial success, and you can continue to reap from that success with a spinoff or a sequel or something, um, it's a lot better, more strategic of a business decision. So that's what we're looking for. Um, so those are our three content mandates. Like I said, that kind of helps us weed out the noise. Um, and right away, if somebody says, hey, you know, I've got this book I want you to consider, um, I can say, okay, well, that meets content mandate number two. It's based on a pre-existing IP. I'm conceptually interested. What's the story about? Oh, it's about, you know, it's a true story of German submarines in the Gulf of Mexico during World War II. And it's got this incredible theme of forgiveness and second chances. Oh, all right. Well, that meets our, you know, number one, noble stories that reflect what is good, true, and beautiful. Cool. I'm interested. Now I'll read the book and I'll see if creatively, if it's something that we resonate with. And that's the second, how we decide if a story is worth pursuing is it a good story? Is it a strong story? Is there a catharsis there? You know, is how do we emotionally respond to the story? Um, is it structured as a movie? Or are we going to have to basically get the story and restructure it for it to even work in a film? Um, does it have, and by that, I mean, like, does it have all the plot points of a movie? Is there like a clear inciting incident, a good midpoint and a good, you know, what, what I call the, um, um, the all is lost point. So mm -hmm. are there clear, uh, story points that you can kind of hang the thread of the story on? And so once we, once we look at that, like, you know, and, the book that I was just mentioning is actually on our slate. It's called The Heartmender. We read the book and not only did it pass our content mandates, but we're like, oh, wow, this is a very strongly structured story. It fits with a film structure. We ended up turning it into a limited series, um, which is basically just a long movie, but it fits very well into that um, into that film structure. And so we decided, okay, we really like this story. There's a lot of emotional catharsis there. It got us off the couch and we decided to move forward with the story. And then there's like, um, kind of, as I was hinting there at the end, there is a gut level response that Adam and I really pay attention to when we're considering stories. 
this only comes in once it's past every um once it's past all of the other points like if if it looks like a good fit for us adam and i have a honest conversation with each other do we have this like does this story actually get us off the couch does this move the needle for us are we excited to tell this story and it's important for us and we've learned the hard way to be very honest with each other um, because there's mm-hmm. some ideas which from a business perspective or from a story perspective you're like conceptually yeah that would be a great movie but if I'm being really honest with myself that's not a movie that I want to make um or sometimes a lot more rarely it's the flip side that's a movie that I want to make but if I'm being really honest with myself the story isn't there and the business aspect isn't there so that's kind of the that's kind of the big consideration we also consider business things such as does the story have what is the size of the audience around the story you know um for a book how big is the author's audience um what is the for this genre and for this type of story what is the typical audience for that you know so we want to be a profitable company so we're not interested in making a bunch of passion projects or art house films which really have to fight uphill to get an audience we want stories that are readily assimilated into the film audience so mm-hmm. does that i i feel like i talked for a long time <laughs> on that question does that answer your question yeah that that makes a lot of sense um especially kind of how you were putting the whole because like with franchises and and trying to make and how those are more sustainable because now nowadays you just hear so many people talking about franchises because like everybody's doing it and it almost it seems like some companies are literally doing it just so that they can join the franchise crowd you know but like hearing that there's you know this is our business reason behind why we want to pursue this instead makes a lot of sense i mean not to get off on a hot button issue but it's it's smart from a business perspective Um, think about star wars you know star wars movies as of late are garbage Mm -hmm. but i still watch them because they're star wars and that's just a smart business decision it it would be even smarter if they actually made good movies (laughs) but you know it's with a franchise to some extent it's kind of free money now we don't you know um (laughs) star wars is obviously one of the largest ips in the world so to some extent it's a little bit different for what we're talking about Mm -hmm. um well actually to a large extent it's very different but still some of the core tenets um are the same think about a more maybe noble story coast sized franchise which would be um the enola holmes franchise on netflix Mm mm-hmm that's the type of story that we're looking for. They're very um, modestly budgeted movies. There's a lot of potential for sequels and they have immense audience reaction. And um, if we can find a story that has that potential to be franchisable, then great. You know, makes a lot of sense. I am curious a little bit more like with the franchise stuff. Um, like how how much with you are you for your noble story code are you mainly looking at like the potential for sequels and spinoffs 
or are you also looking at like the merchandising aspect that you know you see franchises like star wars and that doing um i mean all all of the above i mean we we are a film company so we're we're most concerned about the show or movies first but definitely you know if if there is merchandising yes that's a bonus um but i think it it doesn't to be franchisable it doesn't just have to be a show it can be multiple movies there can be um a series i mean we saw that with star wars they started with movies and then they went to to shows and then they still do movies it, it's movies are honestly easier than shows so i kind of would, i wouldn't mind a franchise that could do some movies for you know uh out of the gate but we're open to all all of the above if it's the right fit uh fit for mandates yeah not not every franchise is easily merchandisable you know like if you think about go back to our heartmender story like what are we going to sell for merchandise like Nazi, Nazi plush dolls or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Nazi, <laughs> like it <Nazi> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense to be franchised. Um, and, you know, also that story isn't a franchise because it's very contained. And when I say franchise, it can be, um, I might be bending the definition of the word a little bit, but it's basically a story that reaches farther than just the one iteration or the first iteration. Okay. So with the Heartmender, like it's really a self-contained story. After the story ends, we're done. There's not much more to talk about because we covered all the big stuff. Like, what are we going to do? Go back and do the childhood of the main characters. Like nobody cares about that. Mm -hmm. Um, on another hand, um, like, okay, this isn't a franchise, but our show Hope Medical is a medical show. There's so much potential to tell a complete dramatic arc in one season and then continue that for the next season in a totally different location, you know, with the same characters, different characters, some different characters. Yes. There's a lot of potential for that story to go beyond just one season. Right. Or if in some alternate universe it was a movie, there's a lot of potential to make a sequel, you know, sequel yeah. to that or even, you know, a threequel after that. So and um is it, is it a threequel a trilogy? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a word. I love it. <laughs> threequel is kind of a yeah, I've been hearing that a lot recently. Um prequel, prequel now it's a no, yeah and, and like there's a um so there's a book series that we are um looking at that would make a good there's three books in the main story that we've been looking at that would make a good franchise it's a uh mg slash ya novel i'm trying not to be too specific or novel series and it's very similar to the um millie bobby brown in all homes series like mm -hmm. i think the budget is very similar and i really like those show ideas and i like the franchisability of that and so that's looking at the underlying property and seeing oh there's three novels here okay well the first novel would be a movie the second novel would be a movie the third novel would be a movie like there's 
there's potential for this to be more than just one installment. And if you're going to put in all that effort of getting a movie sold, it's nice to be able to say, hey, if audience really respond to this, there's two more just like this, and they right. might be better than this. You know, um, there's a lot of, from a business perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe like continuing on, like once, say, a project's come to you guys and, you know, it's past your kind of criteria to be accepted as like a project for Noble Story Co., how do you decide like what format? If I remember right, I think even like your Heartmender project, didn't that start out, you were thinking it'd be a feature film and now you're going more limited series with that? Yeah, honestly, that one's that one's tricky. I think there's honestly, there might even still be some debate on that one, even though okay. we, we are going as, as a limited series right now and we have six scripts right now. Um. That, that property before it came to us, there had been a couple attempts at a future as far as scripts go. And so we acquired the rights to the book and all the, all the previous scripts. And kind of in looking at those and looking at the book and the, the opportunity at the time for distribution was pushing for a limited series. So we, I think that's, that one was kind of a, a bit of a business decision mixed with looking at what had previously tried to be done and put on the page and realizing that it what the, the future wasn't capturing the entirety of the story. Both those scripts weren't working um, in the way they needed to be. It, okay. it, was cutting, it was cutting out a lot of things that we loved about the project. Um, you know, could we take the six scripts and cram them into a three-hour movie? Sure. Um, maybe, maybe a distributor will tell us to do that. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. That that one's a, a funny one for us because it is such. It does have a very, you know, strong inciting incident. It has a very clear end. Um, but limited series are really popular, and we thought let's go down that road because there's so much content here that we, we can really fill that time well and not not just have a bunch of add we're not adding just like tons of random things just to fill the time yeah yeah i got a lot to add to that yeah <laughs> <laughs> from a from a business perspective there's a big consideration because when you're looking at a feature think about all the outlet opportunities that you have for that you can go the independent route where you get investors to finance the movie. Um, you can go the fully independent route where you don't engage with the distributor and you get investors to come on board and you do the film festival circuit. Um, and then you hopefully sell it at a festival, right? There's that fully independent route. There's also the studio independent hybrid route, which is where you go after investors and distributors at the same time and you get uh, what's called like a minimum guarantee deal or a negative pickup deal and you finance the movie yourself you retain creative control and then the studio picks it up and pays for it when it's done um, you have the studio route where you sell the movie to the studio and the studio finances it and they kind of basically take it off your hands um, you might be attached to produce but it becomes a studio picture um, then there's the streamer route where you could take it to a streamer like Netflix or 
any of the other major streamers and say, hey, do you guys want to do an original series? This would be very similar to the studio route, except depending on how known you are, the streamer may give you a little bit more to do with your story, or they might just take it off your hands. Um, if you're doing a series of any fashion, you have one option to take it to a streamer or to a network, which are kind of the same thing. You can't finance it independently. Independent series financing does not exist. Nobody will buy a pilot that you've shot and financed yourself. Mm -hmm. um, there is no, there is no theatrical model. Um, you basically have one option. So from a business perspective, if we're looking at, you know, the heart mender, um, we, there was, there was some uh, potential for a series distribution, which is why we decided to adapt it into a limited series. But as producers, if you're looking at a story, don't you want to go with the option that says, all right, this gives me the most exit strategies. Let's go here. Because at the end of the day, if every if all the major studios pass on getting involved in your project, you still believe in it, and an investor comes along that believes in it, you still have a shot at making your movie. With a limited series or a series uh, like an episodic, if the networks and streamers pass on your project, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, um, I guess you could go to Angel um, and sell it to the sell it to the crowd if there's enough people that like it, mm -hmm. but. That that might be okay. Maybe there's maybe there's one and a half options because Angel is a Angel is a studio slash streamer in the same way that Netflix is. It just operates a little differently. So um, from a business perspective, there's some wisdom in considering what your opportunities are at the end of the road. Uh, also, from a story perspective, one of the things that we were should have seen coming but have been frankly kind of surprised by is just the amount of content that we have created for the heartmender is herculean like trying to yeah. rewrite the scripts there are six episodes in this limited series doing a script rewrite that's 300 pages of scripts that is every time we get a every effort. time we get a pass, I'm just like, oh no, there's new scripts in my inbox. <laughs> so I gotta yeah, when you're considering a you know yeah. 104 page feature, which is kind of that's the sweet spot that we like to see our feature scripts. Okay. Um, if you're looking at a 104 page feature, you can read that in an hour and a half if you're mm -hmm. a you know normal speed reader. Um, with the Heartmender, it takes me an entire day and even then i can't get through all of it and when you're you're juggling a slate of projects how do you find the time to commit to a full sit down read um and not get brain dead from reading that much content over and over again with every you know oh we went through and tweaked this character or we tweaked this storyline at the end of this episode and that episode you know um it's just so much content it's a lot to juggle and a feature is a lot easier to um, get to a good spot than a series is. And then there's also the. Um, so, so what you're saying is we might we might die on the the Heartmender Hill with our limited series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's also the okay. So Adam mentioned like if we had turned the Heartmender into a feature, we would lose a lot of the story. It's true, but it's also deceptive 
Because if you look at a story, and this is a trick that or a trap that a lot of people fall into, if you look at a story and say, oh my gosh, you know, okay, let's just count the pages. There's um, 239 pages in this book. All right, we have a 300 page script. All right, that's pretty good match. But how much of this book cannot be turned into a film? Every time the characters have an internal monologue, if they're thinking about something or if they're remembering something, how do you turn that, how do you put that on the screen? You know, you can't just have a five minute shot of the main character staring off, you know, giving a thousand yard <laughs> stare. Because nobody's, what is, what's she thinking about? What's going on? I mean, or you are could, you going to put, you could theoretically do that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the novel <laughs> author can have a character do something and then flash back in the character's memory to a thing five years earlier. And, you know, you can do this flashback, not lose track of the story. In a film, you can't do that. Every time you do a flashback, you just like put, press pause on the, narrative arc of the story and then do like 10 minutes of exposition in your flashback and then get back to actually something happening i feel like we need to we need to do a diversion here and do a flashback to andrew and i's pet peeve of of flashbacks right <laughs> oh man like, we're gonna flashback to the flashback conversation flashback, like andrew and i <laughs> oh like well we hate one flashbacks of our, one of our story pet peeves we don't like flashbacks and we really don't like it when a movie starts with the end of the movie. If if you, but now you're probably going to see a movie from us that does that, and you're going to call us out. No, of you will phone. not see a movie no. from us that does that. Um, yeah, you probably won't ever see that. The, from us. the thing with flashbacks, flashbacks by definition are exposition. They never move the story forward, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the story only happens in the present. Characters only grow in the present. Flashbacks can give you information about the characters, but it's information and it's exposition. Not, I'm not saying that's always bad. Sometimes you can have flashbacks that are impactful for the story, but generally a flashback will pause the plot until you're back in the present and then the story can continue. So from a one of the rules that we like to do is minimize exposition and flashbacks are pure exposition. Try to get rid of them. Is there a way that you can put that information into the present of the story? Then it becomes a much more engaging narrative. Mm -hmm. um, one of our projects we had when we first got the script, like Adam said, it started with the end. We literally saw the, you know, in the third act, it's not the, it's not the um, loss point. It's the resolution point when the character triumphs and he's it's our project endurance it started with the main guy at the starting line of the boston marathon which is you know um uh midpoint or midway through act three in the present script it steals all of the tension out of the story because you know where you're going mm -hmm. and just like music storytelling is all about tension and release and you want to build tension and then you want to release it in a very specific way and you kind of want to keep that ebb and flow going so that people stay engaged. And as we were reviewing the script, um, Adam and I <laughs> had this realization, okay, not only do we not like starting with the end of the movie, but um, I have a feeling that these flashbacks, about every 10 pages or so, there was a flashback to the Boston Marathon as Cedric journeys through the movie. 
I have a feeling that every flashback is hiding a narrative problem because the movie feels disjointed and I can't put my finger on why, but it feels disjointed. What happens if we pull all these flashbacks out? And we did. We we actually called the writer and said, all right, for the next pass, literally cut all of the flashbacks and move them to the end of the or yeah maybe not cut them that's not the right word but basically cut them out of the script where they are move them to act three where they should be because now it's in a linear fashion right it's not Mm -hmm. it's not non-linear it's in linear fashion and when we did that we were like oh crap the narrative is all over the place there is no there is no dramatic arc in the story anymore (laughs) so uh, it really revealed a lot of problems. We had to go back and um, re- redefine where the inciting incident was, how act one happened, how act two, you know, that break into two moment, which is so important mm-hmm. where that was in the script, how you get to the midpoint. Um, it like completely changed the storyline. So yeah. Long story short, we don't like flashbacks. <laughs> I mean, I don't always blame you. I definitely have written some in the past, and hearing you expound upon it, I, I think back and I'm like, yep, I can totally see that's exactly like what I was doing there. That's awesome. Because obviously with your company, you're developing multiple stories at the same time like what advice do you have to other producers out there about devoting time to multiple projects and making sure you're able to keep moving them all forward and it's not like my full attention's on this and this other project that is like drowning over here well i guess to i would say focus on multiple at the same time i think that's that's how you diversify risk. The film industry mm-hmm. is super risky. Uh, everybody knows it. And I think if you're focusing all of your attention on one, then you're you're just, you're risking so much because uh, as Andrew and I have found, one project will all of a sudden, like we'll have one conversation with somebody and all of a sudden that project is like, it's like the dark horse. We keep saying like, oh, this, this project's like the dark horse project is just showing up out of nowhere. It was like dormant for a year almost. The script is great. And all of a sudden it's just taken off and, and you know, the phone's ringing off the hook. Whereas if you only have one, it, there's so much time between when, when you hit, you'll hit mile markers of, of progress, you know, say you need to get a new script draft written. A screenwriter might, you know, that might take a month, you know, to work on that script. And now you're, you're not able to move the needle while you're waiting for the script. Whereas Andrew and I, one project will have, uh, you know, a script rewrite going on, like Heartmender is being rewritten right now, uh, like a polish pass right now. Our project Endurance, we just did a trip to Atlanta. And so while our screenwriter is working on one thing, we're we're traveling and we're meeting other people on another project. So yeah, yes, it, it is a bit to manage and it, you know, it does slow some of the projects down sometimes because we are working on, multiple at the same time but i think ultimately it's a wise it's it's been a very wise thing that i would recommend to other people just it, stuff just takes time and mm-hmm. and by having multiple going forward it, it's just a smart balanced producer thing to do yeah and i'll also 
Um, before Adam and I started Noble, we got a lot of, uh, we asked a lot of people for advice about starting, partnering together and starting a company. And I was surprised at how many people were very critical of a partnership. And, you know, companies should be run by one person. It should not be a two person thing. You know, there's just going to be conflict. You guys are going to hate each other and, you know, um, I think starting a company is like starting a marriage. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, it might not always be smooth sailing and there have definitely been times that Adam and I don't see eye to eye on stuff, but if you're committed to the company and to the common goal and you very important to Adam and I, we care about people and that includes the two of us. Like I care about our friendship a heck of a lot more than I care about our company. And if you just keep your priorities right, a partnership is so valuable in so many areas. Number one, we have gone a heck of a lot farther together than either of us could have gone alone. Um, number two, when you're juggling a slate of projects, um, Adam is, you know, spearheading two of our projects. I'm spearheading two of our projects. And we have some others that um, are kind of, you know, being spearheaded by both of us, depending on how big the project is. But dividing our efforts has really helped us keep our sanity. And it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it helps our projects continue to move forward so that, oh, my gosh, Hartmender is this huge monstrosity that's gobbling up all of our time right now. Well, it's gobbling up all of my time, but Adam's got plenty of time to work on his project. And now endurance which is adam adam's one of adam's projects that he's spearheading that one could keep going while i'm like oh my gosh i gotta solve this script problem and like i gotta create this yes. stupid pitch deck you know <laughs> all of this stuff that's <laughs> taking up my time and adam's yes. having phone calls for his other project he doesn't have to worry about that it's it's yeah. a really smart decision to partner with somebody that you're compatible with on a personality level and you guys are going for the same goal and then you can split the workload. Yeah, we found that to be a, a big part of what makes our company run smoothly. It's kind of getting back to what we started with, Andrew. We went to a conference, you know, pounding business cards like crazy and realized that we had met each other and we were kind of ignoring each other. Not ignoring each other, but we weren't. We, could, we like wasted a couple of years like kind of hanging out where we could have just been working on stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, that's my advice to just anybody listening to this. Maybe, maybe you already know the person that you need to be working with and, um, it's okay if you're not working with, you know, X person that you really want to be, uh, you could start developing projects today with, with a buddy, you know, with a friend that you already know. For sure. Get good people around you, like our board. Yeah, so get it. Good. good. You mm -hmm. you have to surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Um from multiple different areas, from business areas, from like, you know, uh emotional intelligence, you know, people that really understand how people work. Like it's really good to just surround yourself with all of those people. Yeah, like our our board's got us doing strength finders tests recently and they're like lining up our strengths and like we're going what's going on like that's my strength wait no andrew's that way i'm this way and it, there other people are bringing clarity 
to our company with our, we call it our, our governance board. It's not a, an official board that can necessarily tell us like we have to do something, mm-hmm. but they're advisors that we meet with once a month and we talk for an hour and we, we do follow-up meetings with them and they're just straight up speaking into us. Um, one of the guys is on, I don't know, like seven or nine businesses, understands business and how that works. Um, you know, our, our board chair, uh, Dana, I mean, she, she's a part of a foundation or organization called Wedgwood Circle that's for, uh, was started for the creative industry. And so she brings a wealth of knowledge and contacts there. So that is really good advice that Andrew brought up. Surround yourself with good people uh, that know more than you. Yeah, it's not about building somebody's, it's not about building our own kingdom. It's about how do we build God's kingdom and how do we, you know, how do we respect and protect our relationships with other people? Who cares? To some extent, who cares about the stories that people watch on the screen? The real impact of what we're doing and the if we're going to see real impact on people's lives, it's going to be the people that we work with. So let's really take care of the people that we work with. No, that's really good. Um, and honestly, I feel like a lot of that touched on the last question I had, which was just what was one piece of advice you would give to somebody just getting started as a producer? Find a find a friend, phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> feel like I'm on the uh, who wants to be a millionaire or something. Yeah, and understand um, understand why movies work. Go watch tons of movies, especially old movies understand why they work, how they work. It's, you know, movies are art, but there's a lot of science involved, even down to the story level. You know, at the end of the day, movies are about manipulating people's emotions. And that's a very, like, it's not, it's not woo-woo spooky, you know, it's, (laughs) there's a very definite science to that. And there's a pattern. It's that tension and release. If you understand how that works, you know, Isn't you'll there, there's like somebody famous that said it's not when the actor cries, it's when the audience cries that matters. Yeah. Somebody important that. said that somewhere. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I like that. I've never heard it before, but that's good. All righty. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, the call here, but thank you both very much for uh, coming on the show today. Thank you, Micah. Appreciate yeah. it. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks for all your work that you're doing with this podcast. And you've been you've been out producing some movies too, working hard, and, and it's been fun watching where you're headed. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this episode of The Producer Podcast. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to The Producer Podcast, and thanks for listening.